Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Guardian. The Prime Minister is keen to move on from COVID to crime, and he thinks high-vis chain gangs are part of the solution. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be out there in one of those fluorescent jacketed chain gangs visibly paying your debt to society. On Tuesday, the government announced a series of proposals in its crime reduction plan, including more frequent stop and search, a trial of alcohol tags and criminals undertaking visible community service. There's just one problem with their plans. Police chiefs aren't backing them, with some calling the strategy weird and gimmicky. So will it work? Plus... My Lords, these proposals will require significant change to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Why tensions are once again high in the never-ending row about the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. It might be summer recess, but that doesn't mean we're short of things to discuss. Let's get the latest with Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Raph, it's lovely to have you on. Let's start with the government's so-called beating crime plan. Um, There were several announcements that were part of it. And, you know, you get the sense, don't you, that the government is keen to move the subject on from the dreaded COVID. Very much so. Uh, in the same way that, you know, the, the, there was a plan to get Brexit done and then Brexit was done, although it wasn't really done. We now get the feeling that the, the line is sort of get COVID done, you know, move on and get out of the way. Uh, there was the, the, the vaccine bounce uh, for, the, for the Conservatives, seemed to you know, give them a good poll boost. That seems now to be dissipating a bit. And I, you get the feeling that the government would very much like to now move on to talking about something different, something that's not a pandemic related. And being tough on crime is is core conservative territory. Uh, and so you have a, a set of what look very much like what we used to call in the new Labour era uh, eye-catching initiatives um, to get on the headlines and uh, make it look like the government is doing something about something that a lot of voters care very strongly about, which is antisocial behaviour and crime. Whether uh, it will actually make any difference to that particular problem seems to be a bit more disputed. And stop and search is part of it, isn't it? We, we That's often something that's tightened up when governments want to look tough, but people quickly, campaigners quickly turned around and said that, you know, it can be very discriminatory, didn't they? Well, yes. I mean, that that is one where at least the police say they would quite like to be more at liberty, uh, particularly I think the, the London, the Met police 
uh, quite want to be able to, in the immediate vicinity of a crime, stop people very quickly, sort of just fan out, stop everyone and search them. But but yes, uh, what tends to happen is that it's young black men who get stopped and searched uh, a lot more than anyone else. uh, And it sours relations between the police and that community uh, and doesn't appear to have a particularly strong effect uh, over time in in suppressing the crime rate. There are others that the police just think are are silly or, or pointless. I mean, there's more an extension of tagging uh, for offenders. Uh, there's this, what have been described by the Prime Minister as, as chain gangs, although the Home Office was, was trying to say that that definitely wasn't what they would be, which is uh, uh, offenders wearing high-vis jackets out and about in the community, picking up litter or, or, or visibly giving something back, as it were, sort of uh, making justice uh, look conspicuous on the streets. This is an idea that comes around every now and again as something that politicians think is a good way of proving to the public that they are doing something about crime. It is a classic bit of uh, policy window dressing. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to have gone down terribly well with the with the police themselves, does it? I mean, one police chief told our colleague Vikram Dodd, it's like there's been an explosion in a strategy factory. I mean, it's not it's not ideal, is it, if the people who've got to implement your plan think it's a bit ridiculous? Well, this is very much part of a wider problem with uh, the government at the moment and with Boris Johnson's downing street. And it's something that Conservative MPs are starting to fret about, which is, I mean, it, as if they haven't met the guy. I mean, they know who they, they chose as their <laughs> leader. You know, he, he this is what he does. He's a, he's a columnist at heart and he comes up with uh, snappy lines and a good bit of rhetoric. You get the sense that uh, you know what they wanted was a week of people talking about how the Tories are going to be tough on crime, and they'll get that. And then next week it'll be something else. And and Conservative MPs are rightly, I think, worried that this is a slightly skittish, unfocused. Uh, it's it's a campaign mode, not an actual government. Yeah, it's a bit like the vote leave playbook for the referendum campaign, isn't it? Migration week, economy week. You know, it's. <laughs> kind of feels quite familiar but but you'd think things would be somewhat different when you were actually in government and can actually you know make policies and change things um Raph, labor have been focusing on crime for quite a while haven't they making the point that rape convictions are at a record low and the government's failed to prevent a rise in antisocial behavior they've talked about that quite a bit um do you think the government's worried that that people are starting to perceive that crime is kind of rising a little bit around them or that their neighborhoods are, are being sort of hit by it is this this something that that, that voters are concerned about uh, as far as I'm aware, it certainly is. I think there is polling evidence, and, and uh, from what I'm told, there is focus group evidence that that is the case. That it, it, there's a feeling it, it might be connected to coming out of lockdown and people either not being used to, you know, being out and about, or a sense that somehow uh, sort of young people have gone off the rails in lockdown. Well, one way or another, I think there is a feeling that alongside the great explosion of, of, of individual responsibility and freedom, uh, the government feels the need to demonstrate that it's also got a lid on society that's keeping things under control. I don't think they're hugely worried about yet about losing that, uh, losing control of that issue politically to Labour. I don't really yet sense at all that Downing Street are worried particularly about Labour and Keir Starmer. I think they might be worried about losing control of it a little bit more generally uh, or possibly you know, to you know, even a, a sort of a, a comeback from some slightly Nigel Farage insurgent force on the right. That seems to be where I think a lot of Conservatives are more concerned about losing the thread of, of, of public support. 
And do you, does that mean you think it's not the right territories for Labour to be on? They've been very keen to say we support the police, we're tough on crime, we have you know antisocial behaviour measures. They announced the other week that they would scrap this plan for a, a new royal yacht and they'd spend that money on you know tackling antisocial behaviour. Is that not the right place for Labour to be, do you think? I think it's absolutely the right place for Labour to be. I don't think a Labour government would ever get elected if people didn't think it could. Uh, it was serious about dealing with crime. Uh, and but I don't think it's something that Labour will capture quickly or easily. I think it's you know it, it, it's right for for Keir Starmer to to want to be in that arena politically. That's the business of government. It's always a, a very salient issue. Um, my po- point is really just that. I think there's there's still work to be done there to really win trust uh, in among a lot of the voters that that Labour is credible in in that area. Raf, another government plan announced today from the Department of Work and Pensions is is about tackling the inequalities faced by disabled people in the workplace uh, and at home by building more accessible homes and transport, for example. And again, it hasn't had the glowing reviews the government might have liked. And charities almost immediately um, turned around and said there hadn't been enough consultation on it. and It was a little bit thin. I mean, it felt like more of a significant piece of work than the crime plans as a sort of 120 page report. But but again, there's this sense of sort of not engaging, isn't there, with policy being drawn up a bit in a vacuum? Absolutely. Uh, and it it looks like a very elaborate statement of very good intentions, uh, which I'm sure it, it is. I don't think the government wants to actively inhibit the opportunities for, for, for disabled people. But there's no underlying argument about the causes of inequality. You know, what are the structural obstacles? Uh, I don't mean sort of the physical barriers, but I mean, the, what is it about the system and the way society and the economy are organised that are impediments uh, to some people taking full advantage of, of the opportunities they should have and don't have? And Boris Johnson has never really made that argument. I think there are people on the left who'd say he doesn't make that argument because ultimately the answers are quite left-wing ones. You know, the sort of social democracy, spending more public money drawn through the tax system, having a more egalitarian model of government, that's what levelling up really takes you to. Um, and that's not somewhere the Conservative Party wants to go. And I think that that probably is the case. But without really having a, an analytical framework for understanding the causes of these problems, you're always going to be stuck in a kind of, you know, a, a speech that has starts with a general lament about isn't everything awful. And although we've been in government, we're not going to take responsibility for it. And here's £50 million to fix it in some initiative that the money's probably already been spent before or has been repackaged from some other budget somewhere. Mm. And maybe we need mayors for counties. Yeah, it sort of doesn't really match the scale of the problem outlined, does it? Um, Yeah. And finally, Raf, um, Allegra Stratton, Boris Johnson's former uh, press secretary, and now the COP26 spokesperson, has been out and about couple of places this week. She's wrote a piece in The Telegraph, didn't she, talking about micro steps that we can all take to save the planet. Uh, one of which was stop rinsing your plates before you put them in the dishwasher. Another one was to freeze your leftover bread. Um, I mean, it was generally mocked, wasn't it? Is it what, what, what's she doing there? And, you know, and, and why is it not being so well received? And what should she be doing in that role? Well, I think I understand the theory that you know, if you give people a handle on it and say, look, there are these things you can do. Don't despair. We can all, if we all pitch in, uh, we can make a difference. That's got to be a better narrative than, well, the planet's on fire and there's nothing you can do about it. Just, you know, crawl under a bed and weep. That's, you know, so it, it makes sense to give people something positive to think about. But 
uh, at the same time when you as soon as you sort of understand that we're we're talking about you know coal-fired power stations or you know huge industries generating a lot of carbon uh, you know, and the wider issues, you know, how are we going to heat our homes? What kind of boilers do we have? What kind of cars do we drive? I think the danger is of talking about rinsing your dishes or not rinsing your dishes before putting them in the dishwasher. Instead of it being uh, giving people a positive a handle on the issue, you sort of trivialize it in a way that either makes people who are skeptical and don't want to engage think, well, this isn't a serious issue. And the people who already know it is a serious issue think, well, that's a sticking plaster that's not going to help at all. So it sort of falls between two stools there. And ideally, you'd want to see Boris Johnson out carrying these messages, wouldn't you, if this is really what the government thinks we need to do? And he doesn't, we haven't heard a great deal from him recently, have we, about you know how he's going to seize this issue and how the government is going to make COP26 a success? And that's because... Ultimately, well, he's got other things to deal with for a start, but it also, I mean, when he does engage with it, what you will find, I think, is this bigger problem that the, the only way seriously to engage with climate politics is to level with people about the hard yards that you have to put in to get from the economy we have now to the one we need. And so, I mean, this issue of, of heating homes is is, is an important one you know most people have a lot of people have gas boilers uh, if you want them to switch to something else you're going to need to more or less pay them to do the switch or you need to you know, change the, the the structure of the current market so that it is cheaper those questions of where the money comes from what are the structural transitions that we're trying to make uh, and how are we going to do that how are we going to finance that journey are exactly the kind of uh, strategic government issue thinking issues that Boris Johnson is particularly bad at. And as we were just discussing a moment ago, that's not the way he does his politics and that's not the way he thinks about politics. Uh, and I think that inevitably is going to be a problem around COP26. Yeah, there's not really any cakeism available there, is there, unfortunately, which is, tends to be his uh, his way of approaching things. Uh, Raphael Bell, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. After the break... Why the EU and UK are back at each other's proverbial throats over the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll be right back. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, on Tuesday, the European Commission announced it was pausing its legal action against the UK for alleged breaches of the Northern Ireland Protocol. This came a week after the UK government published a command paper calling for a renegotiation of it. 
Both the EU and the UK acknowledge that the current deal is not working perfectly, but they have very different ideas about how to fix it. Before the EU announced that it was pausing its legal action, I spoke with Katie Haywood, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and a senior fellow of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank, Daniel Boffey, The Guardian's Brussels bureau chief, and Jess Sargent, a senior researcher at the Institute for Government. Katie, maybe we should start with you by asking how is the protocol actually operating on the ground and how much disruption is it causing? I mean, I think it'd be fair to say there isn't the kind of disruption to day-to-day lives that the UK government has been indicating that there's been in its recent command paper. Um, Most people sort of feel the inconvenience and the impact of the protocol in terms of maybe companies in GB saying they're not going to deliver to Northern Ireland. Um, But for the most part, the shelves are pretty full and it's very much behind the scenes, I think, with businesses having to comply with the new rules for uh, paperwork and um, customs-related procedures for getting goods into Northern Ireland. Uh, We're in a period at the moment of of, um, grace periods operating, Um, so there is this very much a sense that things could get significantly more impactful with respect to the protocol come the end of September. And Jess, the sense we got, so we had that the UK government put forward its proposals, didn't it, for fixing the problems last week. And the sense we got from them was that it's, it's, you know, there's a huge impact on the ground and it's just, it's effectively unworkable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, what the UK government proposed in its white paper, it said, was a rebalancing of the protocol. What it's really asking for is quite a serious um, renegotiation. Um, And it puts forward some of the problems that have arisen because of the protocol, uh, like, for example, um, suppliers, uh, retailers in Northern Ireland switching suppliers from GB to the Republic of Ireland, or new uh, compliance burdens for businesses trading across the Irish Sea. Now, the UK in its uh, command paper kind of suggests that these were unforeseen uh, consequences of the protocol. Well, actually, its own impact statements at the time the deal was signed um, identify these as risks. Um, so I think this is one of the things that's causing some frustration within the EU. Yeah. And Daniel, what was what was the EU's response? We've had that this week, haven't we? Yeah, no, no, no renegotiation at all um, is the, the very blunt and very quick speedy response to the, the government's command paper, willing to tinker around the, the margins. And only yesterday they um, produced a couple of papers on a few issues um, and how they could possibly get around the problems. But they're, they're not willing to do the um, the very fundamental rewrite that um, the command paper is proposing. And to be honest, a lot of the ideas in this command paper we've seen before, we've, we've, we've seen sort of intelligence-led checks and the rest of it, sort of relying on the trust, on the honesty of uh, lorry truck drivers to to say where their goods are going. We've seen all this before and it's been shot down. So I can't see this particularly going anywhere. And Katie, there's the sense, isn't there, that, that you know, they're now rubbishing something that they that they willingly signed up to. There, there, there must be a sense of kind of lack of good faith, right? Did they sign up to it always thinking they were going to want to tear it up? I guess is the, must, the question people must be asking themselves. I mean, politically, in terms of the reception to that continued uncertainty and guesswork here in Northern Ireland has been simply to have the effect of deepening and underlining the differences of political opinion here with unionists and pro-leave supporters very much um, supporting the UK government's line on this, objecting, of course, to the impact of the protocol and being concerned around its possible implications in the longer term. But then on the other hand, you have 
most of the parties um, expressing frustration and, as you say, sort of saying, well, you signed up to this. Uh, it was ratified with an overwhelming majority against the wishes of the Northern Ireland Assembly, I should say. There's a lot of a sense of frustration, I think, that actually nothing is certain, despite the fact that across the board and um, businesses have been calling for certainty and stability um, and um, given that consent vote that we'll have at the end of 2024 this feels very much a, a cause of political instability and tension uh, that we really could have done without. Yeah and Jess what's your reading of the sort of politics of it of how we ended up here you know I, I noticed Dominic Cummings uh, who's becoming sort of increasingly uh, how can we put it I was going to say unhinged that probably shouldn't work it probably is nice <laughs> Dominic Cummings who's becoming increasingly vocal in his criticisms of the government has said this week that they only ended up signing up to the protocol because um, you know those terrible Tory backbenchers were sort of trying to stop Brexit and you know signed up to the Surrender Act as Boris Johnson called it at the time I mean it's sort of ancient history isn't it but what's your reading Jess of the politics of kind of how they ended up with the protocol. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is in this command paper that the UK government's just published, they're actually asking for more than Boris Johnson originally asked for when he came to renegotiate Theresa May's backstop. Um, so essentially, um, the two problems with the backstop were um, the regulatory border in the Irish Sea that it uh, created, and that was a big problem for the DUP. But really, the ERG's main gripe um, was on the possibility that the backstop could create a UK-wide customs union and, and keep the the rest of the UK in that, and that would hamper the UK's abilities to go on and make other trade deals. If you go back and look at the letter the Prime Minister sent um, to the EU when he first um, tried to negotiate the backstop, he really didn't ask for much in the regulatory space. He just accepted that there would be this kind of all-island regulatory zone, and that would mean regulatory checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So there was a sense in which actually at the time the UK government didn't really prioritise those regulatory issues which are now causing more problems on the ground. Um, and so this kind of idea that they were strong-armed into it in par uh, by Parliament and that if Parliament hadn't been so difficult and tried to stop no deal they could have got more out of the EU doesn't really ring true because actually they weren't even asking for what they're asking for now. Yeah, which just seems extraordinary with with hindsight, doesn't it? It's a sort of attempt to it's an extraordinary attempt to kind of rewrite history, which is something this government does quite a lot. Um, Dan, it feels a little bit then as if we're we're heading for a big conflict in the autumn on this, right? When that's the September thirtieth date is is due to happen, you know, does the UK act unilaterally? What does it do? How does the EU respond? Is there a big sort of crunch point coming on this? Yeah, so the UK, will, I, I can imagine they will trigger Article sixteen. That does seem to be paving the way towards that. That would then, you you would take that to arbitration and uh, the arbitration panel would say whether the UK was um, within its rights or not. But I think that EU will not want to sort of really rush into anything. I think that EU really aren't up for a big blow up on trade war on this and they'll try and find any way they can to avoid it. Mm. Could I say something just on those, on the grounds for triggering Article 16? Yeah, so Article 16 is in the protocol, right? And it effectively suspends it, doesn't it? You know, maybe, maybe explain what it is, Katie, and then, then yeah, absolutely go on. Yeah, so it's so-called safeguard measures. So they're meant to be temporary and specific, um, and it allows unilateral action from one side to um, not fully implement the protocol. Um, but ultimately, the objective of safeguard measures is to enable the thing to work in the longer term. So it's basically a temporary and specific fix. Um, unusually in the protocol... 
um, it has as a grounds for safeguard measures um, saying that serious societal difficulties also constitute the grounds for triggering Article 16. What this command paper does is emphasise the protests that have been happening in Northern Ireland. It's pointing to those protests and saying that is indicating serious societal difficulties and also it points to unionist concerns around unionist identity through all of this. That is a worry because there's a risk there of being a self-fulfilling prophecy in that if you're saying basically we as a, as a government, as a democratic government, we, what we will be doing will be guided by the actions of a small minority who wish to see not only the protocol gone, but also the Good Friday Belfast Agreement gone. Yeah, and if you if you step back from that, Jess, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? That that in any other circumstance, the government would be saying, you know, we we won't give in to you know whatever it might be, protests or terrorism or whatever. You know, usually the line would be, this absolutely won't change anything, won't change our lives. It seems pretty extraordinary, doesn't it, to hear it being used as as you know a, a justification for the the fact that things aren't working. Yeah, absolutely. I think what Katie just said is is really important, um, and I think the UK government there is a sense that it has been slightly fanning the flames of some of the uh, objections to the protocol for its own purpose, because fundamentally, Article 16 is almost one of the very few tools at the UK government's disposal. It knows that it's signed up to this legal obligation through the protocol. It's very hard to get out of international treaties, even if you claim that it was your predecessor that got you there. So I think it's it's really hamming up um, some of these problems um, in order to justify the use of, of, of Article 16. There's a question of whether it, it will go there. I mean, the government actually did acknowledge in the command paper itself that Article 16 wasn't a sustainable solution. Um, but fundamentally, you know, unilateral action is, is never going to get us to a stable state. And despite, um, you know, in, as, as well as all what Katie was saying about the kind of problems that that creates in, in Northern Ireland, it's also probably not going to get them to, to where they want to be. And so I think they need to be very careful um, about what they're saying on this. Mm. Dan, how much difference do you think it made when Michael Gove, who was involved in the talks, was replaced by David Frost? Oh, well, it, it did make a huge difference. Lord Frost brought a, a very different take. I mean, he was fundamentally opposed to the vast parts of the withdrawal agreement, and he's taken a very uh, belligerent attitude attitude to, from the start. And his relationship, he's a, he's, a, he's a very different character to Michael Gove as well. He isn't someone who easily builds relationships um and he quite likely thinks he thinks in, in the relationship between the european union that it's good there's a bit of grit in there he thinks that the eu's neighbors all too often are far too pliant and get rolled over and that the uk eu relationship will only work if the uk is quite difficult all the time and um and that way they'll they'll get they'll get some wins along the way i think some of the blame for where we're at at the moment has to be put on his, his head and that does potentially suggest there might be, you know, he at least might take quite a combative approach into the autumn, you know, perhaps speaks to using Article 16. Although, as you say, you suspect the EU side would, would try not to make it sort of blow up into a, a big sort of trade war. Well, it's really difficult when one side is sort of seems determined to um, be quite really provocative. Um, and and, and we, we talk about David Frost. I mean, this is the problem we constantly have is that people forget that Boris Johnson ultimately is leading this ship. Um, and everyone blames the people around him. Oh, you know, he's not being well advised, or that he's at Boris. Johnson, these people are sort of running amok. When he, Boris Johnson put, appointed these people, um, he has to take responsibility. 
Absolutely. And and uh, on that note, um, Jess, we had Fintan O'Toole write for The Guardian last week saying that one of the main issues with the protocol is that Boris Johnson can't accept that actions have consequences and that you can't, as he put it, bake your own oven ready Brexit deal and then remove one of the main ingredients from the from the final dish. Do you think there's something in that? I, I'm still slightly scarred by the day I spent following him round on the during the 2019 general election when he, you know, I was there when he brought that sort of pie out of Brexit pie out of the oven in a sort of, you know, stunt to say that his deal was was oven ready. It doesn't really feel like that now, does it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, there's a question of whether the problem was that the prime minister didn't understand the deal or whether he did understand it and was just hoping to be able to wriggle out of it later. But if the if the UK is really going to extract some serious concessions on the Northern Ireland Protocol, it doesn't just need to convince the commission, it also needs to convince member states. States. And I think there are a lot of member states who are seeing things like the extension of the grace periods, which the EU agreed recently, um, as kind of rewarding bad behaviour. Um, and they're worried that if the EU continues to kind of cave in to these demands and what are essentially threats um, from the UK government, that that might start bleeding into other aspects of the relationship, that the UK government might try to visit elements of the TCA or try to extract more concessions there. So although David Frost thinks this is the best way of doing things. There is a question of whether actually it's going to make it harder um, to get the EU to compromise because they don't want to be seen as as weak and backing down when very clearly what was agreed is in is in this legal text. Yeah, absolutely. All right, all of you, thank you so much for, for shedding a lot of light on that complicated issue. But it's, you know, it's going to continue to be uh, Dog both sides, I think, for, for some time to come. Thank you very much, Daniel Boffey, Jess Sargent and Katie Haywood. Thank you so much. Thanks. Cheers. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Joni Greve speaks to Oliver Millman about Biden's climate policy ahead of COP26. And if you haven't listened already, I would strongly recommend you listen back to Today in Focus's five-part investigative series on the Pegasus Project, a collaboration between The Guardian and several other news organisations around the world. You won't look at your phone the same way afterwards, trust me. And as Westminster quietens down for the summer, look out for a special series from us where we lift the lid on some key political figures. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Raphael Baer, Jess Sargent, Katie Haywood and Daniel Boffey. The producer is Yolene Goffan and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.